Welcome to Around the Corner. I'm Nick Tyson. To get started here, I want to make a statement that will help set the tone for this show. Our current events are, I think, a reflection of our state of being. They're a reflection of our mindset, uh, of what's going on internally. And with this in mind, by taking a deep look at what's happening in, in the world, I think we can learn a lot about ourselves, both as individuals and as societies. But we often seem to miss the connection between current events and our own self-reflection. So for this program, I want to pick a current event, pick current events throughout the program that help illustrate something bigger, something deeper about humanity, about identity, about human values. So here's the format. The first 15 to 20 minutes will be a monologue, which I've recorded, laying out the historical and values-based context of any given current event. Then, for the remainder of the program, I'll converse with an expert and have them critique the monologue. So I really view this as a process, a process of learning. Um, You'll hear perhaps things in the monologue that are misguided or they're, or it's missing something, I want to keep that in because that's the original monologue. And then through the conversation with the expert on the topic, they critique, you know, what I missed, what I got right, um, what I could have emphasized more, whatever it is. Um, this is not a perfect document. So take that into consideration. I want this to be a display of the learning process and not something that is overly polished. So you get to see my flaws. Yay. So with that said, let's begin. There's a country that's been in the news a lot lately, and it's been in the news a lot because it touches on the conversation of democracy. We have a history with this country. The idea of totalitarianism, democracy, human rights, uh, the role of government. This country is really important for all of those conversations. Of course, this country is Russia. So in an effort to understand a little bit more about where Russia is coming from, we're going to explore some of Russia's historical context. I, I realize it's a very general statement to say the, the Russian perspective, But uh, there is such a thing, I think, as the ideas and motivations of a country, of a culture. So keep in mind this is very general, but it's an introduction to a little bit of the Russian mindset. So we're going to go back to a couple of events in the last hundred years and use those events as a framework to understand how Russia approaches the world today. So imagine it's February of 1917, St. Petersburg, Russia. The February Revolution, as it'll come to be known, is in full swing. The outcome of this revolution is that it overthrows the Tsarist government, which has been in power for a long time. Fast forward seven months to October of the same year, 1917, this is this is the Bolshevik Revolution, as it comes to be known. So in less than a year, 
in less than a year's time, there are two revolutions in Russia. And this is the beginning of the creation of the, the Soviet state, the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union is the first socialist government, the, soci the first socialist society that the world has ever seen. So that's, that's significant. That's a significant event in Russia's history. Now, fast forward again to 1938. The Great Terror is in full swing. This is also known as the Great Purge. It's known as the Great Purge because, uh, well, Joseph Stalin is in control of the government at this point. And Joseph Stalin is an insanely paranoid individual. He doesn't trust anybody. And so the Great Purge is him dismissing, firing, executing thousands of people in his government, in his cabinet. Not only in his government, but this coincides with a crackdown on the rest of the population, Russia's population. So the NKVD, this is the Soviet secret police, they kill hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, millions of people in several year in, in a several year span. The Gulag labor camp system is set up, and this is this is a huge system. There there are many camps that house prisoners. Now a lot of these people are political prisoners, and this is this is Joseph Stalin's crackdown. This is his paranoia. It's a government of fear. It's a society of fear. And at the, at the beginning of World War II in 1939, there's over a million and a half people in these camps. Now, that's only the number of people that were in these camps at that time. That's not the number of people who had previously been in the camps and who would in the future be in these camps. Now, millions of people die in these camps. This is a complete absence of humanitarian rights. I mean, this is, this is a dire situation for lack of a better term. Fast forward again to 1987. Mikhail Gorbachev is in control of the, the Soviet Union at this point. And he gives a speech basically saying that Stalin had committed, quote, enormous and unforgivable crimes. Now, this is significant because this, is, this marks a major shift away from what the Soviet Union had previously been under Joseph Stalin. Now, this period under Gorbachev is known as de-Stalinization, or glasnost. So, I want to give the, the full quote here of, of what Gorbachev said in this regard. So he said, quote, The guilt of Stalin and his immediate entourage before the party and the people for the wholesale repressive measures and acts of lawlessness is enormous and unforgivable. This is a lesson for all generations. Contrary to the assertions of our ideological opponents, the Stalin personality cult was certainly not inevitable. It was alien to the nature of socialism, represented a departure from its fundamental principles, and therefore has no justification. End quote. That's Mikhail Gorbachev. He's rejecting the evils of Stalin. He's distancing the future Russia from the very recent history of Russia. This is, this is a new period in Russian history. So 
fast forward again now to 2013, and imagine we're sitting in a press conference. Vladimir Putin, the leader of Russia at this time, is speaking, and he's asked by a British journalist his feelings on Stalin. Putin responds in in a really interesting manner. He says, uh, I'll just read the whole quote here. He says, quote, What is the essential difference between Cromwell and Stalin? Can you tell me? No difference. From the viewpoint of the liberal spectrum of our political establishment, he is a cruel dictator like Stalin. He was a very treacherous man as well, one should say. In the history of Britain, he played quite a controversial role. His monument is standing... No one is going to remove it. The essence is not in these symbols, but in the need to treat with respect every period of our history. End quote. So Putin, from what I can gather here, he's not, he's not necessarily dismissing Stalin. He's drawing a parallel between Stalin and Oliver Cromwell, who is a significant figure in British history. Now, to make a long story short, there's really no similarity between Joseph Stalin and Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell. So to my eye, this is Putin not fully denouncing Stalin. I mean, he's still, I think, from what I can gather, Putin views Stalin as as a great statesman, somebody who is really cruel, uh, but effectively strengthened Russia. You know, he was... I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that Putin regards the evils of Stalin as dismissible, but there's something, there's some sort of sense that I get that Putin reveres Stalin for his strength and for his efficiency in running the government. You know, the Soviet Union by the rest of the world was regarded as, you know, this very strong government strong in the sense of 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 unshakable you know it was it was firm it was efficient it was it was iron and this is this is something that putin i think feels like russia has lost to some degree it almost seems like putin wants to return russia to this state of greatness um in in my research i have come across this sense that there's there's a russian mindset which suggests that in russia the government is almost the basis for what's correct now i'm not saying that every russian believes this uh so take that as a disclaimer but i think that in talking about you know this very general idea of Russian of a Russian mindset uh, that that the the idea of correctness is defined by the government. The government, I I think the distinction here is that in in America we have this conception that the government is hired by the people. It's employed by the people to run things efficiently, to create order, to create stability. But in the Russian mindset, I get the sense that the government is much more the role of a strict father. It's not, um, 
It's not hired by the people. It's not in service of the people. It's there to correct the people when the people err, when the people go off the wrong track. The government is there to correct and provide this stability, provide, it's probably too far to say they provide morality, but but the government and morality, I think, are very, very much intertwined in a way that, that, that they're not in, in America. So... With this in mind, the past evils of Russia, I think in Putin's conception, they, they, they ultimately serve the survival of Russia. They've not necessarily been morally, morally correct, but they've provided strength for Russia, which has been good. So in teaching history, um, you know, history is a large part of our identity as individuals, but also as nations, as cultures, societies. And so the government has a very heavy hand in teaching history. And there's, there seems to be an admission of the, the mistakes that have been committed in Russia's past, the, the mistakes of the Soviets, the mistakes of Stalin, but not necessarily the crimes that have been committed by the, the Soviets. I think an important point also in talking about history, Russian history, is the Soviet defeat of Nazi Germany. This is really monopolized on in current day Russian propaganda. The, it, it's taught that the Soviets fought for the betterment of humanity, this very big picture, noble, uh, moral reason. Um, they weren't fighting for the interests of themselves only like other nations were. This is kind of the line of teaching in current-day Russian propaganda, from what I can gather. So I think part of the motivation for current-day Russia in approaching the world is there's an idea that's a holdover from the Soviet uh, period. And this, this idea is expansionist policy. Now, expansionist policy is basically the idea that in order to create strength, in order to sustain strength and ensure the longevity of your values, your society, your societal values, you need to expand. So spreading your worldview, essentially, is the best way to ensure its survival. So that was a very Soviet mindset, and I think that there is still that mindset in the Russian government today. Um, that kind of goes back to the idea, you know, that the Russian government doesn't serve the people, that it's sort of the other way around. So history is used in Russia, I think, to maintain this image of a strong Russia. This isn't obviously unique just to Russia, but it's clear to me anyway that this is a large piece of how Russia uses its, its history. Real quick, I want to go back uh, to, to a few more events here. In 1989, this is the fall of the Berlin Wall and the beginning of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, Putin has said that, this, that, that the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. So that says something about the way that he thinks. He obviously holds some regard for the Soviet Union. 
I think it's also helpful to talk about Boris Yeltsin. And um, he was the leader of Russia after Gorbachev. And he, he was a progressive. His policy was maximum freedom first. This is definitely a shift away from Soviet Russia. Um, he appoints Vladimir Putin as, as the leader of the FSB, which is what replaced the, the, the secret police, the Soviet secret police. And Putin convinces Yeltsin that he is a progressive. He is reform-minded. He's similar to Yeltsin. I think this has been proven otherwise in the subsequent years. Uh, Putin is not as progressive as I, as I think that he made himself out to be. Um, there's, I'll link to resources that um, I've I've gotten this from in the show notes, so you can check those out. Uh, but Putin is promoted to prime minister under Boris Yeltsin in 1999. Uh, Putin is obviously a skilled bureaucrat. He's worked his way up. Uh, his history is pretty interesting. He's worked his way up all the way now to being uh, the president of, of Russia, obviously. Um, but after he is is appointed prime minister in 1999, there's an event which he monopolizes on. And I think that he views this event, or he viewed this event as a as an integral part of reclaiming, rebranding the strength of Russia. And this event is a series of apartment bombings. So there's four apartments in three different cities around Russia which are bombed. Uh, almost 300 people are killed in these bombings. And Putin's response is, he says to the nation that we, the Russian government, is going to find and kill the terrorists, the terrorists who committed this horrible act. And so his response is to intensely attack Chechnya and Dagestan. Now, there's a whole history there. These these locations are uh, more separatist. They don't necessarily recognize the full legitimacy of the Russian government. So there's some separation there. And so Putin, I think in a projection of power, in a reassertion of power, uses these apartment bombings as justification to attack these places, thereby strengthening the power of the Russian government. Um, there's also the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the, the U.S. encroached on the, the former satellite states of the Soviet Union. Now, this was obviously not taken well by the Russian government, so there's a whole history there of tension. And this tension continues, obviously, today. Uh, to, to this day. Um, in 2011, the Arab Spring, this is an important event, I think, in the way that Putin perceives the world, but specifically perceives the U.S. So in 2011, Muammar Gaddafi, who's the leader of Libya, uh, you know, he is deposed, he is captured and executed by, uh, by Libyan rebel forces. And Putin, there's stories of Putin watching this video of Gaddafi being captured and executed. Putin watching this video over and over and over again. I think he sees the U.S.'s hand in Gaddafi's fall and execution. 
and he perceives that that could be him at the at the hands of U.S. intervention. So this really serves to stoke Putin's antagonism towards the U.S. You know, Hillary Clinton after after Gaddafi's execution, there's this famous line where it's caught on camera where she says, um, "We came, we saw." He died, and then she laughs about it. This is obviously not taken well by Putin, and so then we come to the elections. Um, the elections and back to expansionist policy that um, Putin sees America as this force which intervenes in other people's business and results in reg- aims for regime change, and Putin sees that. He could be part of that regime change, I think. And so from that perspective, Putin justifies his, well, it's it's still under investigation, obviously, but um, meddling in the 2016 election. This is, um, it could be understood that this is Putin's, this is his way of defending Russia by by acting first, preemptively acting against the United States. He wants to maintain his power, obviously, just like any political leader does. And so this is his effort to maintain that power and to keep the force of U.S. regime change at bay. I'd like to now bring on Glenn Cranking to dive further into this topic. Glenn is an associate professor of history and Scandinavian studies at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota. He is also the former director of the Russian and East European Studies program at Gustavus. Highly relevant to this episode is Glenn's current work on teaching a class on propaganda. It's called We Want You, Propaganda and Persuasion in the Modern World. So our following conversation is based on the, on the monologue you just heard, which Glenn graciously took the time to listen to prior to talking with me. So without further preamble, I bring you Glenn Cranking. So yeah, Glenn, thanks for, thanks for coming on here. My pleasure. Yeah. Um, maybe we can just start off, what was your gut instinct what was your gut reaction after listening to the monologue and i think you were really good at pointing to some of those big historical moments and the the uh big events that uh happened in the soviet union's history that and and then later the uh renewed russia uh, afterwards that point to how they look at the world and their place in the world and their relationship towards towards government. From my sense, I would have played up a lot more the role of the Second World War, or as they call it, the Great Patriotic War, hmm. uh, because you see that moment uh, of transformation in, in the Soviet Union to being a major world power, which then leads into their standoff with the United States in the Cold War, um, but how they view that experience and their role in that experience is still so relevant for their outlook today. Hmm. Okay. Um, and I, I think you're you're right in all the other points and that they're making and, and their relationship with the government and 
the, as we would view them, the significant abuses by those in power um, and targeting people of their state. And there's definitely some parallels. But part of that is also the deference that they give to the state because of that Second World War experience. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I want to circle back to that. Um, what did you think about the starting place of it? It's always hard to know where to start when you're talking about history, but ta- starting with the, the revolution. Was it that- is. I, I think that is a, a common trend to re- trace it back to the, uh, the Russian revolutions and, and kind of the birth of, of communism. I might have gone back even further and talked about that transition from the majority of the population being serfs to being liberated under Alexander II, and what is then the status of the majority population uh, and their relationship with the state um, and the changing legal categories of them. And so you have this big dissatisfaction of the Tsarist government, which then feeds into that February Revolution uh, and what causes it, and essentially every aspect of society was against the government. Um, and you have this period where the the Tsar then steps aside, uh, abdicates the throne in in February 1917, as as you talked about. Uh, but then the big question is, okay, now what? What is Russia going to look like? And the inability of society to very quickly adjust in the midst of a war that's going on with the First World War uh, um, led this this one group. The, the communists, the, the Bolsheviks, from offering a solution. And they targeted their message specifically to the grievances of a large population. Um, when we had the, the February Revolution, the Bolsheviks were so insignificant in society. And in the, the first couple months of that provisional government and, and the... Uh, um, and the Soviets, there were councils that were formed uh, to rule uh, in that intermediate period. They were insignificant for much of that time period um, until they started offering solutions. And you have the rhetoric of, of Lenin uh, critiquing the government and the positions of, of what was happening and, and infusing that in their communist ideology. Uh, but he was, his big slogan was peace, land, and bread. Hmm. They wanted out of the war. They wanted to be fed. They wanted access to food, and uh, and they wanted land. Hmm. So, how much is World War One a part of this whole scene? That was definitely um, the First World War was definitely that spark uh, that led to this cascading of events with the the Tsar abdicating the throne. People didn't like the Tsar beforehand. Uh, there were major problems. The the structure of government hadn't reformed reformed significantly enough to address the problems of the of the time. This is something that began, I would say, with Peter the Great and and some of his his transformations. Of so, what the, year is that? Uh, Peter the Great is is the uh, beginning of the eighteenth century, um, um, and so he is trying to transform Russia, make it much more of a European mindset. Uh, European influences bring that into his his structure of government, his society, the culture, uh, and there was definitely resistance to that. Uh, um, Catherine the Great, hundred years later, almost hundred years later, tries to continue in that that spirit, uh, but you have major structural problems in 
the way society was set up, and the government was trying to, at times, work within that structure, at the same time trying to address the problems of, of modernization. And when you get into the 19th century with industrialization, you didn't have a working class. You didn't have a structure of society the way it was set up with their estate system to allow for a working class. And unless you restructured the legal categories that people fell into, uh, whether it's nobility, clergy, um, uh, the the peasantry, um, if you didn't have a, a way for a working class to develop, you're going to be behind with industrialization because you need to have the free movement of labor, essentially, or you need to have access to labor. Uh, and that was a problem. And they, the SARS recognized this as a problem, but had different ideas about how to get there. And a lot of times my sense is, is that they were trying to respond to the most immediate concerns. You have a few statesmen that are, are trying to think of that long-term picture of how you can restructure, but they wanted more immediate results. And there are a number of, of individuals, uh, Stolipin would be one, who had a lot of brutal policies, but also had that long-term vision, or Sergei Vita, uh, who again has that long-term vision. Um, if some of the reforms had actually been given the time to take root, might have had a, a much more successful transition of, of power. But people wanted more immediate results, the SARS wanted more immediate results, and you have this changeover back and forth, you have a lot of opposition to the government, and that opposition just continues to grow and expand until by the time we get to the Second World War, or sorry, the First World War, and there really wasn't much support for a SARS government. So the, the problems of being in a war just exacerbated the the underlying problems that were already there. Hmm. So how did the how did the revolution turn into Stalinist Russia? Obviously, so the, that's the, a complex the, the, question. Yeah, the, the slogan of of peace, land, and bread that that Lenin puts forward definitely was appealing to the a large section of the population. Uh, they were really the only ones that were making that type of of promise to the people, and as soon as they came into power. Uh, through revolution, um, they worked to get that those uh, points right into into place. So, withdrawing from the First World War with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, uh, um, at huge loss of of land and prestige to do that, but you have to have peace. Um, one of the first things that they did was nationalizing the land, giving the land basically to the the broad peasantry, taking it away from large control by the nobility. Um, so that, again, trying to, to put these promises into place right away. The transition to Stalinism is, is certainly that the political expertise of Stalin in positioning himself um, and picking off those that could rival him for control one by one, uh, forming alliances with, with other top leaders in the, in the Bolshevik party um, to push one of them out, and then, again, rearranging and, and pushing another one out until he's the only one left standing, essentially. Uh, um, and that was very strategic on his part in, in claiming control. Lenin's will made very clear that he didn't think Stalin was the person to lead. Because he, uh, I mean, he feared him, right? He feared him, right? yeah. The, the power, the, the 
policies that he potentially would put into place. He had great concerns about that. Um, but by getting rid of all his opponents, he was the last one standing, and so he was the powerful one. So what were his motives? I mean, was this just a power grab, or is he motivated by some ideology that is bigger than him? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I, he was definitely driven by the ideology, um, the type of control that he was putting into place and, and controlling the mind, creating this myth of, of Lenin uh, is definitely from his, his background as well. Uh, he was educated um, in seminary, so kind of that transference of, of religion uh, towards God as opposed to religion towards the state as he built up around Lenin uh, was, was par- part of that as well. But I think it's also wanting that power, liking having that power, and doing everything you can to to remain the strong person. Hmm. And that, as you talked about in in your earlier segment, the the purges that happened in the 1930s of picking off potential rivals that could possibly rival him for for control of some sort. Hmm. Um, if someone became too popular, he didn't like that. Huh. And the, the gulag prison camp system, was mm-hmm. that, that wasn't started under Stalin, was it? Was it, that, that's from previously, right? I knew you had different prison systems and labor camps uh, for a very long time uh, in Russian history, but he definitely expanded it considerably. Um, and the, the sheer number of people that were put into the gulag system uh, considerably expanded under under Stalin. Hmm. So then, moving on, I had talked about in the monologue Gorbachev distancing himself from Stalin. You're saying I missed a big part in there. Can you yeah, talk about that? yeah. So you missed about Khrushchev when Khrushchev came to power after Stalin died. Um, Directly he, after? Uh, pr- pretty soon after. Um, there was a, uh, a speech that he gave to the, uh, to the, the leadership, essentially, to, uh, to the Congress, uh, to the Party Congress in 1956, which is referred to as the secret speech. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, the Congress had been meeting. Uh, he called them back kind of late at night and then proceeded to give a several-hour speech mm-hmm. where he essentially denounced the crimes of Stalin and in particular, the the myth of kind of this personification, godlike personification that was so central to to Stalin, uh, his use in propaganda and everything like that, uh, um, saying that that was an abuse of the system that had moved us away from the ideology, and Khrushchev was was very devoutly communist, uh, um, and wanted to to put these Marxist-Leninist ideas into practice and felt that Stalin had moved them away from that through these abuses. How did he feel specifically Stalin had moved away from that? What would he have done differently? Or what should he have done differently? Well, it shouldn't have been about the uh, the focus on the leader, of uh, the focus on Stalin himself. Um, you shouldn't have had the, uh, the purges, that that was a violation of, of the system, going after people who were very devout communists and, and did really nothing to, to warrant being labeled as an enemy of, of the communist ideology, um, but rather the abuse of, of, the, of the role of government in that sense. 
Um, that said, he was, again, very devoutly communist. And so when, uh, when news of the secret speech gets out and there's an uprising in Hungary, he goes down very hard on them and said, that's not what I am talking about. Uh, and you still have to remain communist. You still need to have that party structure uh, and hold on it in society. So there were limitations to what, what he said, but it shouldn't be about the personality. Um, I think what Gorbachev was doing was he was saying he is along the lines of Khrushchev in, in focused on reforming the system. There were problems in the system. There were problems that need to be addressed. And he was there as a reformer. And so his policies of glasnost and, and perestroika were, were part of that major reform, which is very much in keeping with the ideas of, of Khrushchev. And how was the public taking this? That's a harder question because a lot of this is information is controlled. Uh, with with Gorbachev, I would say there was there was easing up of 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 some of that control, allowing people to voice opposition. One of the things that Gorbachev was trying to do was that acknowledging that there are problems in the structure of the system, and if the government leadership doesn't know what those problems are, they can't address them. So the people need to be able to say what the problems are, what the abuses are in the system in order to address them and, and reform and restructure. But again, he was a very devout communist, and so you couldn't say that the problem was communism. You couldn't say that uh, the ideology is the, is the fault. So there were also limitations on what people could say. You look at what happened, though, in some of the, the uh, peripheries, of the Soviet Union, uh, what was happening in the Baltic states. They used this as an opportunity to criticize what they viewed as, as the occupation of, of their states by the communist government. Um, and we're using this as, as an opportunity then to proclaim that they should be independent, uh, that the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which led to their occupation, was illegal. Uh, um, that was not received well by Gorbachev either. Uh, but some of these policies that he put in place, kind of these unintended consequences of those policies, um, allowing people to voice opposition um, and find ways to oppose the government without specifically opposing ideology. So the environmental movement that begins uh, criticizing uh, central government policies uh, and decisions which were detrimental to the uh the environment uh, was one area that they now had opportunities to do that they didn't have before. Hmm. So then Putin comes along. Um, how, how does he fit into this narrative? Is this in some ways a continuation, like a natural continuation or is this, I think it's an attempt back? to return. Uh, um, so Yeltsin was, was didn't fit that pattern. Yeltsin was transitioning Russia away from the heritage of the Soviet Union and the Communist Party control to a what was hoped to be a, a democratic society. Huh. Um, and that was overtly stated on his part? Uh, definitely promoting the idea of, of freedom and democracy, uh, changing the, the structures of, of government. Um, the problem is that transition from a communist economic society to a capitalist economic society is not something that can happen overnight. Hmm. 
there were lots of abuses. You have advisors that were coming in from the United States uh, offering suggestions on how you can transition. Um, there was opposition to some of those policies, this shock therapy that, that was happening in, in the Soviet or post-Soviet society. A lot of people suffered under that, the abuses of it. Uh, and you have this oligarchy that is able to manipulate the system for their own economic benefit, um, which gives them, them a, a significant amount of power that they had. When Putin comes in, one of the big focuses of, of Putin is reclaiming Russia's status as a great world power. There's this perception that under Yeltsin, under Gorbachev, and then continued and expanded under Yeltsin, Russia lost its prestige. It lost its standing in the world. Uh, there's a perception that the U.S., whether through individuals or government action, undermined that transition hmm. uh, to a capitalist society uh, in order to weaken the standing of, of Russia. So there's some of that anti-American animosity that's that's kind of overt with, with that. And Putin has been about reclaiming that standing. He wants Russia to be this, this great, strong power. Uh, in your, your, your earlier segment, you talked about kind of the, the role that, that he plays in kind of strengthening power and, and the position of, of Russia. Um, you also re- referenced him with Stalin as well and, mm-hmm. and whether or not he would denounce Stalin. Mm-hmm. This is where that great patriotic war, the, the Second World War, comes into play because Stalin was the one that, that made the Soviet Union a great world power mm-hmm. uh, through that victory over, over the Nazis. While I, I wouldn't go so far as to say Putin is modeling himself with the atrocities that Stalin had of targeting the people to such a broad extent. He has been about claiming and, and consolidating power in order to, to give that strong presence and that, that strong leadership image, which is very carefully constructed and, and expressed. Um, lots of focus on propaganda with, with Putin at the center of it. Mm. Um, and we kind of joke whenever we see some of these pictures of, of the bare-chested Putin out uh, uh, in the countryside or uh, wrestling bears and, or whatever he's doing. Those are all official government photographers that are there. Those are stage shots. Wow. And it's about crafting this image of him as, as a man's man, as, as kind of embodying this, this strength. Huh. Um, and you see these poster are these calendars that are are sold in in russia today of of putin um that's all carefully controlled it's not paparazzi that are snapping these pictures and spreading them around it's the government that's spreading it around Mm -hmm. yeah yeah well talking about propaganda um it seems like up until well continuing to to the current day that the soviet defeat of nazi germany like that was that was a huge sticking point for the propaganda. It's definitely central to their to their outview, um, to their outlook, and and how they relate to their neighbors as well. Um, and it's as a result of of the Second World War that the Baltic states are occupied by the Soviet Union, that you have the satellite states in Eastern Europe under communist control with the Red Army presence that was there, um, and so when you have Policies, you have uprisings against Russian policy today in Eastern Europe or in the Baltic states. Um, 
the way that Russia views that as it's contesting the Second World War and the victory that, that the Soviet Union had over Nazis. And one of the ref- repeated refrains that I keep seeing, whether it's in, in Ukraine or in, uh, in Poland or in, in the Baltic states, is Russia views this as a rise of fascist sentiment that's happening in Eastern Europe and this great concern. Because for them, anti-Soviet's position in the Second World War means that you are pro-Nazi. Hmm. And is, so that's, uh, did the Soviet Union frame that as a moral concern or a political concern? They, they frame it both ways. Uh, and that's their, you see again and again this, this claim that it's the rise of, of fascism or this resurgence of Nazism that, that's happening at their borders that they're concerned about. Um, and yet you look at these societies and that's not actually what's happening. It's just they're, they are opposing Russia's vision of, of or version of, of history. Um, the Baltic states didn't like being occupied by the Soviet Union uh, and they speak out against that occupation. That doesn't mean that they're favoring the Nazis. Mm. Uh, it means that they're opposed to what the Soviet policy had been in the mm. Second World War mm. uh, and into the Cold War. Mm. Um, but the central role that it plays for Russia, they equate that opposition to what happened during the war and in the aftermath. If you're opposed to that vision, that means you must be pro-Nazi. Wow. Yeah, that, that makes it complicated. <laughs> the other historiographical aspect with the, the war is for, for the Soviet Union, the main focus of the war was the European theater, and so beating the Nazis. The Pacific theater wasn't part of their war experience to the same extent. And so in the United States, we view the dropping of the, the bombs in, uh, in Japan as kind of the, the ending of, of the Second World War. For the Soviet Union, the war had already ended by that point, hmm. at least officially. And yes, they were sending their troops towards towards the Asian theater um, and didn't get there in time. Hmm. Um, but for them and their rhetoric then, the war was over, and the United States drops these bombs after the war is over. And so for, for the Soviet Union, and, and it continues on with Russia today, the dropping of the bombs is the first act of the Cold War. Hmm. And so for them, that made the United States the clear aggressor hmm. in the Cold War. And so their fear of being attacked, which has continued throughout their history going back to the uh, uh, centuries, essentially, this fear of being attacked from the outside, they see the potential of the United States being an aggressive force willing to, to use nuclear weapons. Uh, and that's what they are fear, fearing. And Stalin definitely plays it up for his own advantages. But we still see, to some extent, that, that concern of Russia. Was it talking about expansionist policy mm-hmm. in the monologue? Um, how does that fit in? Yeah, you made reference to the, the United States kind of moving into the satellite states. And I, I would counter that interpretation of it. Uh, okay. I, what you were referring to there, I believe, was was the NATO expansion that, that's taking place into Eastern Europe. Yeah, uh, and sort of opposed to the, the Warsaw Pact. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, and, and Russia would definitely see that as, as NATO and the United States moving into its borders, uh, which is a concern for them. I would... I can view this two different ways. Uh, if you view it from the Russian perspective, it is this concern that you have 
NATO is, is a Cold War relic. Without the Soviet Union, why is NATO still around? Um, and so Russia doesn't completely understand why NATO is is still in existence. Uh, you don't have the Warsaw Pact anymore. Um, Russia's not quote unquote a a, a threat anymore uh, from in their mind. And so when you have NATO expanding and moving right to their borders, they see that as a very aggressive action. Now I've lived in Estonia. I study Baltic history, so I'm very familiar with with their history and their understanding of, of things as well. And from their perspective, they want security, and their big security threat that they see is potential invasion from Russia. It's happened repeatedly in their history. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not out of the question. And so for Eastern European countries and the Baltic states as well, wanting the the security guarantees that NATO would provide seems completely logical. Mm. Um, They didn't have that protection uh, in the interwar period between the two world wars. If they had been part of an alliance like like NATO uh, before the Second World War, maybe they wouldn't have been occupied by the Soviet Union for 50 years. Mm. Uh, So for them, they want that security guarantee. So it's not necessarily the United States moving in it's this alliance being uh, being sought after by the people that are there, hmm. and the United States agreeing to that uh, to that expansion. But then you have this uh, because they're NATO states; they want to have NATO bases, they want to have radar stations, military equipment that are are there, and so you have this buildup that's happening right at Russia's border, which Russia again sees as a very aggressive action, and so they start doing more activities on their border. Uh, uh, and so you have this buildup on both sides. And if you look at it from each of the perspectives, you can completely understand the fear that is there and why there needs to be this strong presence. What I'm unclear about is how can we reverse that? Is there a, a way that we can kind of step back from that? Um, both sides are completely justified in, in seeing a threat, seeing a fear, but it's leading to a buildup. Hmm. And this feeds into the conversation about, I think, the conception of government. Yes. Talking about that in the monologue, how did that sit with you, the way that I framed it? The way I would talk about this is I think that uh, um, Russian society has often viewed the role of the individual as secondary to the interests of, of the whole. And I think we see that going back centuries again. Even so not before just communism. Even, yeah, absolutely. The the role of, of uh the serfs and then from serfs to uh to peasant communes essentially and, and the uh which are not related to the communist ideology, but there's definitely some parallels there of looking out for the village as a whole, for the members of the community as a whole. Uh very much ingrained in them. Um and then you get these whether it's the SARS or the, the Soviet leaders that are not as concerned about the individual as to the security of the entire state. Um, and so huge losses of, of life in, in warfare are acceptable if it means that you're going to remain free of, of an enemy hmm. or if you're going to push back an enemy. Uh, whether you're talking about the Napoleonic invasion or you're talking about the, the Second World War, or First World War, uh, where you have tens of millions of deaths. Uh, Second World War, the Soviet Union has more deaths 
than all the other countries combined. Wow. Um, and it's not, they frame it as this defense of, of their way of life, of, of their system, um, which of course is attributed to Stalin's genius and, and his, uh, his view of, of society in the propaganda hmm. that comes from that. But, uh, um, but that's how they get through those losses. Uh, the loss of the individual isn't as significant as as the whole society, hmm. and so I, I see that role of the individual, which is so essential to Enlightenment ideas and, and kind of the Western outlook, um, as something that isn't completely there to the same extent in in Russian society. Hmm. And that seems to really play a part in talking about the the election meddling today. I know the details and facts are hard to nail down, so you yes. don't have to comment specifically on that. But the just sort of that dichotomy of these two different ide- ideologies being opposed to each other—how does that sort of fit into talking about the the election? I think that comes back to Russia wanting to be seen as a, a great world power, on par with the United States, or above the United States, uh, strength-wise. Um, whether you're talking about the uprisings that are happening in the Middle East, if you're talking about the role of Syria or the position of Syria, uh, they want to reclaim that status that, that Russia is a, a world player and should be taken into consideration. When we talk about the elections, whether we're talking about elections in the European Union or in the United States, I think the main objective for for the Russian government is to undermine the credibility and the power of those states. And not just of those states, but maybe of democracy too? Of democracy as well, yeah. Uh, weakening the European Union so they're not as strong a player. So, so supporting uh, far right-wing parties, uh, which are wanting to dismantle the European Union, supporting the idea of, of Brexit, which would weaken overall the, the European Union, um, meddling in the United States elections. Whether or not they wanted a Trump presidency, I think raising uncertainty about our electoral process and meddling and uh, trying to undermine the legitimacy of, of election results, uh, I think is, is a big factor. Now, the fact that... Uh, Candidate Trump had a lot of positions related to the position of the United States in world affairs and, and international agreements and questions about NATO um, and NATO membership. Um, that all served Russia's objectives as well. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they collaborated in any sense, but they they saw advantages to that, that, you know, candidate Clinton wasn't offering that same opportunity for them. So sure. I could see them favoring more Trump in, for that reason. And even if Clinton had won and Trump hadn't, you're still raising doubts. You're mm. still fomenting this idea of was it a legitimate outcome mm. uh, by having this this type of meddling, which undermines this idea of a democratic society. Sure. So I, that's what I saw as, as their objectives with that. Uh, and we see it in the European Union as well in the attempts at planting fake news. Um, there was a scandal that that had come out in, in Sweden that the foreign minister was was uh, doing some backhanded deals uh, which would not be permitted under, under law. Um, and closer inspection of those documents revealed that they were all forgeries. 
and, wow. and it was an attempt to undermine this, the government of Sweden. Wow. Um, as they are not formally, but it's, it's kind of out there that Sweden perhaps might want to join NATO. Hmm. Uh, so undermining the viability of, of the government in power, but also this idea of a threat. Hmm. Uh, um, so it all kind of fits into their objective of making Russia a greater power. By, by weakening dividing others. Dividing and, and weakening, yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, do you, one last question I had for you. Uh, I mentioned the quote-unquote Russian mindset. How, um, on the one hand, that's a very blanket phrase, very uh, big picture and unfair in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, also think it's helpful in some sense, you know, it, maybe gives us a grasp, a starting place to talk about these bigger picture ideas. Um, what are what are some of the problems maybe with talking about something as broad as the Russian mindset? I think we often think of Russia as this monolithic society um, where people are, are kind of lock in step with their government. Hmm. And yet we see these these demonstrations that are, are happening in um, in opposition to Putin and, and to policies that are there, so there there are divisions in society. Um, there's also tremendous diversity in Russia, hmm. uh, in ethnic diversity, religious diversity, uh, linguistic diversity, and we often overlook that. Hmm. Um, I remember seeing a couple months ago a uh, a tweet from a right wing commentator praising the uh, um, uh, St. Petersburg as an example of a united culture hmm. and promoting Russian culture, which is so far from the truth. Uh, hmm. uh, but that's how some people in the West views Russia. Hmm. And yet you have significant uh, religious diversity that, that is across this vast territory of, of Russia. Hmm. Um, you have differing ideas on things. Um, and I've, whenever I go to, to Russia and, and talk with, with the people, and they are genuine people, they are engaged. They don't always necessarily have access to f a free independent media. And I think that challenges how they view things as any society would be challenged if, if you're only given one viewpoint. Hmm. Um, but people are finding ways to communicate opposition to policies, um, whether that will lead to any type of governmental change and there's limitations on, on elections and who can run and, and hmm. taking out opponents in different ways, uh, um, targeting certain individuals with, with laws. Um, but it's not a united society in the way we often view at least rhetorically, uh, the Russian mentality. Hmm. Um, they are very global in their, in their approach with the people that I have met and talked with, and they love their country. They also see problems in their country, but I, I think that is the case in, in most places in the world. Uh, and you look at American society, and, and we're not entirely united either, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. And there are there is diversity here as well, uh, and so why would we expect Russia to be any different from that? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's an important piece to remember. Um, that's kind of all I had. But is there anything else that you wanted to respond to? 
I think I think that really hit it. Um, with with one exception, and you talked about the role that history plays in a lot of this. And history is a very it can be a very politicized topic. Mm. And one other aspect under under the Putin government years has been what is accepted history and what can you really challenge? And we've seen a rehabilitation of Stalin that's been taking place in uh, in Russian history. Uh, the textbook that was written for use in the schools across Russia uh, was done by committee, and there wasn't a single historian on the committee. So it was very politically driven. Wow. Um, and that's how you view your past is through the history. So it's very much government controlled. There was uh, an online repository uh that was being done about the gulag system and people who had survived the gulag and returned to, to society after, after that experience. And the government came in and confiscated the servers. Wow. And uh, um, not that they were necessarily in favor of the gulag system, but it challenged the government. Even though you don't have the communist government in power anymore, it's challenging that government authority in sure. some senses. And so that restructuring, reclaiming, reframing their history is something that has also been happening a lot in the, the past couple decades. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there just in closing, um, anything that you want to mention about what you're working on currently or where people can see your work? I'm probably several years away from it, but I'm, I'm working on a, a book right now about the Swedish minority population in Estonia uh, specifically looking at their experiences during the Second World War uh, when the region was occupied first by the Soviet Union and then by Nazi Germany and then the Soviets again. Uh, it's a time when Estonia uh, lost three of its minority populations, essentially, because of the war. Um, the Baltic German minority population fled before the Nazis came in or before the Soviets came in. Um, uh you have the Jewish population that fled into the Soviet Union to escape the Nazis or were killed in the Holocaust. Uh, uh, and then you have the Swedes that, that fled to Sweden uh, after having lived there for 800 years. Um, so part of it is about their experiences in that wartime occupation, but it's also about Sweden's attempts to negotiate with the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany over the situation of this this minority population uh, and the limitations that their foreign policy put on them and their ability to negotiate with those two powers. Hmm. Wow. Well, I wish you luck in that. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. You can find Glenn Cranking on Twitter at Gusty Glenn. Also, check out the website he's created for his class on propaganda. It's wewantyou.us, and it features student analytical essays and other projects regarding propaganda. I'll put these links in the show notes. Also in the show notes will be links to the sources I used in my research for the monologue, so check that out. And as always, head on over to theidelect.com to keep up with the project. See you next time.